Good morning, everybody. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to have a look in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. We're going to um, start at the end of chapter 33. There's an awesome type that we're going to look at. I thought it'd be good this week if we um, just step back and saw the big picture, uh, like the role of Christ in, in Exodus, and to remember who he is and what, what represents Christ as, we, as we're going through Exodus just a little bit. Uh, before we actually um, start in verse uh, in chapter thirty-four, yeah, I just pray, Father, thank you that you're such a good God, and uh, we're going to learn this week or read this week who you are. You're long-suffering, you're kind, you're gracious, and um, abundant in mercy. And we just thank you for this passage of scripture, and we just yeah, thank you that. Um, Moses had the boldness to seek a deeper relationship with you, and we pray that we also can be seeking a deeper relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the last couple of weeks, we've covered Exodus chapter 32 and 33, and we've seen Moses as a mediator and an intercessor. This week, we're going to see Moses as a worshipper, and this is really important as our as part of our Christian walk, is, is, is who we are. We are worshipping people. Last week we learned how important it is for us to remain in the presence of God, to remain in his will, and to abide in his love and power. Remember they, um, God said, I'm not going to go in your midst, I'm not going to go with you. If we are not abiding in his love, then we don't have his love flowing through us, his agape love fl- flowing through us, because it is the Holy Spirit who produces agape love in us. And we also saw that the more we abide in the love of God, like Moses did, then the more effective our prayers will be and the more willing and likely we will be to stand in the gap and humbly intercede for people instead of becoming angry with them. So Moses had the opportunity to become really angry with these people and he was, you know, from a human perspective, rightly so. But he had God's heart. So I don't believe that we can pray effectively if we don't have God's agape love flowing through us because otherwise our prayers will be selfish and not according to Jesus' name or nature or character, which is entirely unselfish, if that makes sense. At the end of chapter um, 33, we have this beautiful type. And I've read this many times, you know, as reading through the Bible on that, and it's like, oh, wow, that's great. And I've never really understood it. So I I saw this, um, uh, I read this in a commentary and, and, about this type and it just gave a really small glimpse of it and I thought I want to dig into that and so I did and um, I was really blessed so I'm going to share it with you. Start in chapter 33 verse 18 and it says, And he said, Moses said, Please show me your glory. So the Hebrew word translated glory is Chabod which speaks of weight and substance. Then he said, I will make God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So Moses asked for his glory. God said, I'll make my goodness pass before you because God's glory is good. That's why we can't stand in God's glory because it's good and we're evil. We have an evil nature. Not that's who we are anymore. We have a new nature, a new creation, but we still have this old nature attached to us. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. So what is the name of the Lord? Well, it's his character, his nature, his essence. So, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, 
you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So last week we looked a little bit at John one eighteen and kind of figured out that when people in Scripture had an encounter with God, like Abraham in Genesis 18 and Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, they were seeing Jesus, not the Father. And we're going to explore that a bit more this week. So verse 21, And the Lord said, Here, this is the type we're going to look at this week, verse 21 to 23. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. And so it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So I believe this is a just another type or picture of Jesus and what he's done for us, especially his salvation. Jesus is the central character in the Bible, and he's fulfilled all the, the, its pictures and prophecies and types. And that's how we know he is the Messiah. So this one this morning is really cool. Uh, a couple of background verses, John five thirty nine forty. 40. He said, Jesus said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And Luke twenty four forty four to 46, All things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. So every all the types of the Passover and everything, it's all pointing to Jesus. And th- today is just a- another type, and it's a good one. So th- this whole section of scripture, chapter 33 and 34, is about how man can live in the presence of God. So man was created in God's image. We were made for face-to-face, direct fellowship with God, like Adam and Eve in the garden. There was no barrier. There was no sin barrier there. It was We shared his glory as his sons and daughters. But sin has made this impossible. So Exodus 32 records a great tragedy which highlights this problem. So it should have been a high point for, because God was drawing close to man. He's coming down in glory upon Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up into God's glory to receive the Ten Commandments. And it seemed that God's presence with man was coming to be more of a reality. But while the people were waiting, they made an idol, the um, Egyptian calf, or their symbol for deity, and they started worshipping it. And so they broke the first two commandments. So a little application here. Remember that idols and images will always lead you to worship a false god. So in anger... Moses smashed the tablets, signifying that man has broken God's law. And this exposes the fundamental problem that we're going to talk about today. How can sinful man dwell in the presence of a holy God without incurring God's wrath? And this is what this type is all about. So just to revise what we did a little bit last week, we're going to read chapter 33, verses 1 to 3 in Exodus. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land 
of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, etc. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. And this is a key phrase here. For I will not go up in your midst. Why? Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. This is the problem. God was saying, how can I go with you if you sin like this? His glorious holy presence would mean destruction would fall on the people because God is a just God and he must punish sin. But separation is not the solution either because man was made to be in God's presence. So, and we talked about this last week, would you accept the terms that God offered, the perks, which in this case was the promised land and all the pleasure that come with it, without the presence of God? Do you love God and want to be in his presence, or do you just want the benefits? And this was the test, and as we learned last week, the people responded well. It says, When the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore, take off your ornaments, and this is like repentance, that I may know what to do with you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai in Arabia, Saudi Arabia. So the tabernacle of meeting, Moses' tent, was then put a long way outside the camp, and those who sought the Lord were given the opportunity to leave the camp and go to this tent. So when Moses went out there, the pillar of cloud stood at the door of Moses' tent, what he called the tabernacle of meeting. And the Lord talked with Moses face to face. Now Moses prayed, in verse 12 and 13, for God's presence to go with them. And God met him halfway, kind of. He said, God then promised, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So singular. Then Moses said, in 15 and 16, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. Now, this is what makes us separate too. We talked about God's agape love last week. God's presence is what makes us separate from the world. The Bible says that the world will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. That's in John. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight. So I will do this. You don't deserve it, but I'll do it anyway, because I'm really glad you asked. I'm so glad you prayed this prayer, because this is what I want. I'm looking for someone to stand in the gap and intercede for these people. And now God has given his promise that his presence, Jesus, the rock, the angel of God, capital A, would go with them in their midst. So, after this, Moses makes his really bold request. He says, please show me your glory. This is verse 18. Moses has already made effective intercession, but he still felt the separation between God and his people. So he wanted to enter into a closer fellowship, so that through him, God and man might come closer. Isn't that our desire for our families to enter into a closer relationship with God? 
So Israel had held back at the mountain, afraid of judgment, but Moses was willing to risk getting closer to the glory of God. So for us individually, are we drawing back like Israel or entering in like Moses? Now Moses is not just thinking of himself, but he knows that if he can enter, this is what I think, if he can enter or be more aware of God's presence, then he can lead others into that same place with God. So this is not just a selfish thing. So for us, if we enter in or draw near, then you encourage and show others the way into God's presence also. Remember that you can't lead others where you haven't already been. You can't lead someone into a deeper relationship with Christ than you already have. And this is true for any professional skill. So I can't play lead guitar. So if I try to teach someone to play lead guitar, it would be terrible. <laughs> you know, how can I teach someone to do what I can't do? I can't do it, all right? I need to learn how to play lead guitar first before I can teach someone how to play lead guitar. So this is important for us and especially true for families. Parents, especially fathers, need to be growing in faith, hope and love, becoming mature and complete so that they can effectively lead their families. And in the same way, Moses is asking to grow more intimate with God so he can more effectively lead God's people. So what's God's answer? I will make... All my goodness pass before you, this is verse 19, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So this means God's love and grace is a sovereign and free expression of who he is. It's it's grace. It's not by our works, our effort, our merit, or anything that we can do. We can't earn it. So thank God he has been, he has chosen to be merciful to us but he said and this is the but but he said you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live so we have this tension between God wanting to be in our midst and then he can't because he's holy and we have a sinful nature attached to us as Christians we cannot live in the direct glory or weight of God's presence because God's glory is good, it's perfect, and it strikes sin down. However, the good thing is our resurrection bodies will have no problem. There's no sin nature attached. That's why we're getting a new body. So what we're going to look at today is how God has made it possible for sinful man to live in the presence of a holy God. Let's go to verse 21 to 23. The Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, which is after glory reflection or wake. But my face shall not be seen. So no direct exposure to God's glory is possible. So I just want to show you that the the cleft or split rock represents Jesus. So here's a um, picture of Mount Sinai. You can see the um, the burnt peak up here a little bit. It's not a really high resolution photo, sorry. It didn't come out that good, but that, that top peak is actually burnt. You can see it better on this one. But if you go back to the previous one, you can see that next to the main peak, there's this cleft in the rock. Now, we don't know for sure, 
But I'm imagining that that could be where this event happened because it says a place by me. There's another picture here to show you. So you got the um, Blackened Summit and you got this cleft rock. And down here was where all the people gathered. So it's a perfect place for God to bring the people so he could speak to them. And all the other bits and pieces of the, the, the things that they built, the, the, um, the 12 pillars, the altar, um, the bounds, the boundary set so the people couldn't get too close to the mountain, things like that. So this is the setting where it all happened. Underneath is Elijah's cave. Now the cleft rock where Moses experienced the glory of God is one of the great pictures of Jesus Christ and his salvation in the Bible. So we're going to go through this bit by bit. It explains to us how sinful man can dwell in the presence of a holy God without incurring God's wrath. So when Moses prayed, please show me your glory, God answered, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So through this experience, God is showing all men the way he has provided for man to spiritually enter and dwell in the goodness of God's presence and glory without facing judgment. So, let's have a look. It starts with, the Lord said, here is a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. So it should be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand as I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back after glow reflection awake but my face shall not be seen. So no direct exposure to God's glory is possible while we're still in our mortal bodies. So what does it mean? We'll just pull this apart. The cleft rock, the most important part here, is Jesus. In the Bible, God is our rock, the strong, unchanging one in whom we can trust and find our refuge. So here are some scriptures just to back that up, and it's important for us to know this. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 18 verse 2. Psalm 31 verses 2 and 3. My rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me, my rock and my fortress. Psalm 62 verse 2. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Psalm 62 verse 7. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Psalm 71 verse 3, my rock of refuge, to which I can always go. You are my rock and my fortress. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, he is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are right. And 2 Samuel 22 32, for who is God, save the Lord, and who is a rock, save our God. So the imagery of a rock clearly belongs to God, so he is our rock. We go to him for safety, for refuge. So the Bible applies this to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10.4 says, All drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And that's going back to Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, where the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. So, Going back to this type of Jesus being crucified, Moses, at God's command, struck the rock and the water miraculously flowed out and watered 
um, all the animals and people enough for two or three million people and their animals. So the physical rock is a picture of Christ being struck to provide the water of life, which is the Holy Spirit, to satisfy man's spiritual need. So, as I said, the striking of the rock prophetically points to the crucifixion of Jesus. His body was broken open for our sins, and the result of the striking of the rock was that a fountain of living water was opened to quench the spiritual thirst of the entire world. So Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scriptures had said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. That's John seven thirty-seven to thirty-nine. So here we see the Trinity: the Son was struck by the rod of God for us, releasing the living waters of the Holy Spirit for us to drink. So Jesus is our rock of salvation. So let's go back to Exodus in chapter thirty-three. The physical location here is a place by me. God the Father is saying, I've got a place by me. God's provision for salvation has a specific location, which in this case represents, I believe, a specific person. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The only place Moses would be safe was in the cleft of this one particular rock. Faith in Christ. The next phrase there in um, in verse uh, 21 or 22, it says, And you shall stand on the rock. Moses was told to stand on this cleft rock or split rock peak with the tablets, calling upon God to appear to him in his glory. So this represents putting all our faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you got at 16.31, So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved you and your household. So that's standing on the rock. It's putting your faith in Christ. And then the next phrase is, So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock. So this is like our baptism into Christ or identification with Christ. God put Moses into the cleft of the rock. That's what it says. I'm not sure how it happened or how it practically worked out, but that's what it says. So when we place our trust in Christ, we call upon his name, then God comes in his glory and identifies us, baptizes us into Christ, where we are safe from judgment. And a couple of verses to show that. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Jesus or into Christ have put on Christ. The New Living version of that. For you are all children of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. And the Amplified says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, into a spiritual union and communion with Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, have put on, clothed yourselves with Christ. So it's talking about this union. You're put into the cleft. You're you're in Christ. It's an awesome little picture there. One more. Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we were joined with him in his death? 
So in Christ, every blessing of salvation is ours. So God has provided a place of safety in himself through the cross of Christ, the cleft rock, where we can abide in God's grace. Otherwise, we, like Moses, would be destroyed by the presence of God's glory, God's goodness. Now, the next phrase is, And I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Now, to me, this speaks of atonement. I'm going to cover you. In Christ, a covering or atonement is provided for us. So God's glory includes his goodness, holiness, and judgment on sin. But God himself intervened to cover and protect us from what would destroy us. So only God could do this. Jesus died in our place and bore the wrath of God for our sin. So this protection, this gift, is only available for those who are in Christ, who are placed in the cleft or split rock. And it's also represented by the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the same thing as atonement. Okay, uh, the next phrase says, Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, this always confused me. Is God in a human form here, and you're looking at, oh, he's got big muscles? No, I don't, you know, I don't think it means that. Once judgment had passed, Moses could receive, and what someone said, the tidal wave of goodness that followed in his path. When we were put into Christ, we were identified with his death and resurrection. In his death, he bore the wrath of God upon our sin once and for all, so we no longer need protecting from God's wrath. So the hand is now removed, and we enjoy the goodness of God's glory that shines out from his resurrection. And the event itself is like a picture of a new birth. We're going to look at this in Exodus chapter 34. And that's what we're going to cover today. You notice there's two lots of stone tablets. The first ones that God wrote were smashed by Moses, signifying the breaking of the law. Well, there's another two stone tablets that were written on, and they were written on during this time when Moses was in the cleft of the rock. It's like they were in Christ. So, and this for me typifies, or is a picture of God's law being written in our heart as a picture of the new covenant. So replacing the first tablets broken by man, the old covenant. So this time God would write them in Christ and so would be eternal. So Moses went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him and he took two blank stone tablets. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name or character of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the God is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, giving mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty. So when we trust in Christ, we are put into Christ, and the glory of God comes through us. God's character is revealed and proclaimed, which is both mercy and judgment. But in Christ, we are hidden from all judgment. It's pretty cool, eh? Therefore, in Christ, God comes and speaks into our hearts his eternal goodness, his love, his compassion, and his mercy toward us. He speaks all his blessings to us while we are in Christ, and he writes his laws on the tablets of our hearts. So that this is what the new covenant is all about. It's becoming something that we want to do, not that we have to do. So Jeremiah 31, 31-34 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And another verse, 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. So after God's glory had passed through, the Ten Commandments were written on the new tablets so that we are now a new creation in Christ, recreated in His image of righteousness and holiness. And another verse you'll be familiar with. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Ephesians 4.24, Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. We have God's law written on our hearts. It's something we want to do, not that we have to. So, summary of this this type, this picture of of, um, salvation, Christ as our Savior. The picture of Christ as a rock split open to provide a place of spiritual refuge for sinful people is found in Exodus 33, 20-23, where Moses desired to stand in God's presence and see his glory. Have a man sin would mean his certain destruction by the holy presence of God, unless God somehow provides a way of salvation. God's special provision of the cleft rock uh, for Moses, which protected him from judgment, even while standing in God's presence, symbolically revealed how God would provide access to God's presence and a shelter from judgment for all men through the cross of Jesus Christ. So just to read that scripture before we move on to chapter 34. So Exodus 33, 20 to 23. God said, you, shall not, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, representing Jesus Christ, and you shall stand on the rock, put our faith in Jesus. So it shall be when my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, baptized into Christ, identified with him. And will cover you with my hand while I pass by, atonement, protection from the judgment of God. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So take away my hand, see my back, we'll we'll live forever with him in glory. So let's go into Exodus chapter 34. We'll make a start in chapter 34. And we'll uh, read about God's autobiography here. It's awesome. So, and the Lord said to Moses, Cut two stone tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. 
let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So, as we said, the first tablets had been broken because the law had been broken, which isn't surprising since Paul said the reason the law was given was to show that we couldn't keep it <laughs> and that we're sinners in desperate need of a saviour. Um, so he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, verse 4. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and said, The Lord, the Lord God. So we don't know how to say God's name because the vowels are missing. Is it Yahweh? Is it Jehovah? Um, but we do know what it means. Now, I've got a quote from Spurgeon here. It says, Knowing God should be the most active interest of every human being, and especially of every Christian. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is a Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. So we should be seeking seeking to know who our Father is. So the first thing that the Father reveals to us is merciful which is full of compassion and gracious. Now, God had said previously, stay away because you know if you come to my presence, you're going to die. And so God could have said, I'm powerful, I'm strong, you can't come near me. But no, he doesn't say that. He says, I'm merciful, full of compassion and gracious. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is not getting what we deserve, and grace is getting what we don't deserve, the good things. So, mercy, we deserve torment, but because our God is merciful, we get blessing. We deserve hell, but because he is gracious, we're destined for heaven. Now, the same word, the same Hebrew word for merciful is translated full of compassion in Psalm 78, and it gives a description of, of this aspect of God's character. But he... God, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. So for me that's a beautiful illustration of what this word merciful or full of compassion is. It's just, he's really patient with us. He, He doesn't destroy us even though we deserve to be destroyed. And the word translated gracious comes from the idea to bend or stoop in kindness to an inferior, to show favor or to bestow favor. So it's grace. It's, it's giving to the undeserving. And F.B. Meyer says about grace, there is no greater word in the language than the word that stands for the undeserved free gift of the love of God. And long-suffering. Although I give the Lord plenty of reason to be exasperated with me, he doesn't get uptight, he doesn't drink coffee, (laughs) he doesn't get wired, he has no axe to grind, he's not wounded, he's not trying to prove his point, he's beyond patient, 
And I came up with this idea, his fuse is infinitely long. So if you, you know how you like your fuse and some people got a short fuse, well, God's fuse is infinitely long. It'll never, ever reach the bomb. So he'll never, ever lose his temper with you or me, meaning he's never going to explode or give up on us. And that's what it means for God to be long-suffering. And abundant in kindness and or goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So the picture here, this abundance, is one of overflowing. So imagine you've got a, a sprinkler in your front lawn and you want to stop the water from coming out. So you put your finger on it, what happens? It just squirts out all around your finger. You know, you try and put some tape on it and it, it just is going everywhere. And by the time you're finished, it, it just, you know, you're soaking wet. It doesn't, there's nothing you can do um, to stop the, the water coming out. And that's what God's mercy and truth and forgiveness and mercy are like. There's an abundance of it. There's not just a little cup full to go around, but it just keeps coming out and we end up being soaked in it. Also, it says, um, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. There's no type of sin that can't be forgiven. Except one, which is the unforgivable sin, the rejection of God's offer of forgiveness. But apart from that, once we're Christians, there's no sin we can, we can commit that God can't forgive. And it says, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. If God's love and forgiveness are rejected, then they will receive God's punishment. Now, there's a parallel passage in Exodus 20 verse 5, which helps us to understand this. It says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations, and it includes the phrase, of those who hate me. So remember, as Christians, we're exempt from God's judgment. So this visiting the iniquity upon the fathers, of the fathers upon the children, is for those who hate me. Okay, If their children hate God, then they will be punished too. If their children hate God, they will be punished. But it's for those who hate me. This means that if the descend- if your descendants love God, well, they will not have the iniquity or sin of the fathers visited on them. Some people get caught up with this, this um, generational curse thing. But I just want to read to you from Ex- Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 2 to 4, and dispel any of that generational curse myth. It says, Then another message came to me from the Lord. Why do you quote this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouths pucker at the taste. So the parents are eating it, but the children's mouths are puckering. So it's like the children are taking the consequence of the parents. As surely as I live, says the Sovereign Lord, you will not quote this proverb anymore in Israel. For all people are mine to judge, both parents and children alike. And this is my rule. The person who sins is the one who will die. You will be judged for your own sin, not for the sins of your parents. And that's a principle you find throughout the Old Testament and the New. So remember that God's loving, gracious, and giving nature does not cancel out his righteousness. However, because of the work of Jesus, the righteousness of God is satisfied and the grace and mercy of God are rightly or legally available to every person. All a person needs to do is make the decision to receive God's gift of forgiveness and everlasting life, 
repent from their sins, and they will receive God's mercy and grace. So verse 8, So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. So here's Moses, our worshipper, or a worshipper. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people. So a realization of the incredible grace and mercy causes Moses first to worship, and then what does he do? He starts praying for other people. He starts praying for stiff-necked and hard-hearted people. Where does our love come from before the lost? It comes from an understanding of God's grace. If we don't understand God's grace for ourselves, we will not be able to show grace to others. With the lost, what do they need? Prayer for salvation and a bold spirit to go and witness to them. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. So pardon our iniquity and our sin. Now did Moses go down the hill and partake in this party? No, but he's calling it, he's including himself in the people. And that's what Daniel did when he prayed as well. Um, he, he, he included himself in, in the sins of the people. What, the, what he's doing is he's identifying with the people. We need to identify with a lost world. That's why God could use him. And for me, while it's important to remember who we are in Christ, our new identity in Christ, as being perfect and without blame in Christ, it's also important that we don't forget who we once were, that we don't lose the wonder of God's love, his grace, that he loved me as a sinner. Because if we forget that, we'll lose our humility. God loved me as a sinner. We shouldn't ever lose that fact. And he said, verse 10, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as I have not done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So if you ask anything in my name, I will do it, Jesus said in John fourteen fourteen. <laughs> now, some people say that, okay, that just means you have to say, you pray something, and at the end you say, in Jesus' name. Actually, that's not quite it. It's not quite like saying, you know, talking on the walkie-talkie and saying over and out, I'm finished. Praying in Jesus' name means praying according to his nature, his character. Now, I've found that when I consider who God is and who I am, and I can start to understand his grace, a lot of the prayers that I've been praying aren't really prayers that I can keep praying anymore. Like, I want this now. (laughs) God, I really need a job. Please give me a job now. Deal with that guy who just cut me off on the highway, you know, that's not a, a, a patient prayer. That's not a, a, a gracious prayer. So am I unmerciful, impatient, or short-fused? Or am I long-suffering, merciful, and slow to anger? And when we pray with that understanding of grace, understanding of who God is, and that becomes part of us, then our prayers become selfless instead of selfish And it's because Moses knew the name, the nature, and the character of God that he was able to ask for his presence, his pardon, his eternal promise. So meditate on God's nature as seen in the person of Jesus. 
learn it, understand it, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you, and your prayers will become prayers that God can answer, just like Moses' prayers were prayers that God can answer. So we're going to stop there today. Father, I just thank you for the way you've um, given us this beautiful picture. Lord, come in a place by me and representing Christ. There's only one place where we can find forgiveness and protection from the wrath that we deserve for sin. Stand on the rock, put our faith in Christ for salvation. While my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. We are in Christ. We are safe from judgment. We are identified with Christ. I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Lord, thank you for your atonement, for your protection. And then I'll take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Lord, thank you that now the cross is is past. Lord, we have eternity with you to enjoy in your glory without any sin nature, with our glorified body. And uh, Lord, it's just perfect. So we just thank you and we look forward to the time when we're with you. And uh, we thank you for your atonement. We thank you for your covering, your protection from the wrath of, of the Father when he judged sin. And thank you, Jesus, for, for taking that wrath for us. And help us, Lord, to you know, to understand your grace. And I pray that you really put people on our hearts, especially now Christmas is coming, to pray for their salvation, to pray for boldness, to, to reach out to them, Lord, to want them to enter into a relationship with you and to enjoy your presence also. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.